I want to begin tonight with a teaching that I came across this week. And on one level, it doesn't really appear um, I'm going to be talking about greed, hatred, and delusion and how they play out in our personalities. On one level, this teaching doesn't look like it so closely relates. And yet, I, I find it in my own mind really connected to the motivation as to why I practice what um, what really takes me into this inquiry of being a human being. And I'll, I'll first I'll, I'll share the teaching. It comes from a woman named Barbara Rhodes. She's a, a Western Zen teacher. And um, her teacher was Zen master Song Sun. And so this comes from interactions she had with him. Zen master Song San was famous for talking about the teaching that there is no life, no death, no coming, and no going. So don't make a big deal. No birthday, no death day. One time, Stephen Levine was there to give a workshop on death and dying with Zen master Song San. Tons of people had come for the workshop because Stephen Levine was, a very pop- was very popular. He had lots of books out about death and dying. I went to get Zen master Song San from his room, and as I was walking him down the stairs, he said, what's this conference about? I said, it's about death and dying. And he said, what are we going to talk about? That's not important. In Korea, that's nothing. Dying is not important. And I said, well, it's really important in the United States, so say something about it. (laughs) One thing he said was that when you die, that's how you've lived. You can't just get a special mind in the last 10 minutes of your life. If you have a vow, a direction, some training, and some sense of wanting to be fully human, then death is just like flipping into life. When you die with your last expiration, you take a vow and just say, How may I help you? That's all. Then there's no feet, no perverted view, Just how may I help you? When I read that, uh, I read it in the magazine Buddha, Buddha, forget, (laughs) you know, I read it in a Buddhist magazine. (laughs) Um, And it just resonated. You know, and I think one of the things that took me into was sometimes this sense that, you know, if I practice really well at the moment of death, I'll be able to do something really fantastic. You know, I'll be able to just completely let go, whatever. And somewhere this was something that it's not just a question at the time of death, but it really is a basis of living my life. How may I help you? And when I look in my own experience, what I see is that my habits of delusion or not seeing clearly the ignorance that can be in my mind is what keeps me from really being of service or having a sense of not being of service. And that this has been 
you know, just this sense of wanting to be of service is such an underlying motivation for practice of wanting to see that which obscures vision in order so that one can be of service. It seems like a question I can ask myself at any time in life. And within that context, can do the most that I can in that moment, whatever it may be. The inquiry into the places we get caught takes us into looking at what's called the three poisons in Buddhist teachings, that being greed, hatred, and delusion. These are said to be the three unwholesome states out of which the suffering that we experience comes to be. These are also the forces that can become strong habits in our mind. And when we don't have wise attention, our actions are often motivated by these poisons. We find that there can be repeated tendencies in the mind, grooves that get set in the mind, that might take us into uh, solidifying a sense of personality around these habits. We might find that we tend to, in moments where there's uncertainty, not seer clean, seer clean, we... Clear <laughs> scene. We might just um, not speak properly. <laughs> um, we might find that there's a groove into greed. So we aren't sure what to do, so we look for what's going to give us the most pleasurable outcome. Or we might find that, that there's a habit of aversion that in a moment of uncertainty, we simply pull away, disconnect. Or in a moment of uncertainty, we just simply don't know what to do. It might be a moment of delusion. What we find is that these habits can become our default. Um, they're just the way we habitually respond. And each of these tendencies can really be a misplaced way in which we pursue happiness. With greed, we may really be believing that our happiness will come from some experience, you know, whether it be uh, some pleasant visual experience some uh, pleasant mind state. We just have a sense that this is what will bring us happiness. 
Or with aversion, we may have a sense that in order to be happy, we have to get rid of certain things in our life. You know, certain aspects of experience, we have to get rid of them. In in delusion, we may not really know how to find happiness, so we just keep looking for it outside of ourselves. So tonight I wanted to explore something of each of these poisons and how they can manifest through our personality. I found it uh, really helpful. I once heard Sharon Salzberg give a talk on the three personality types. And these three personality types are, um, they're spoken about in one of the commentaries, the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification. And it comes from over years of teachers working with students, seeing that uh, there can be different configurations of these um, these poisons, but that that it's really common that some people will experience one more predominantly than another. And obviously we experience all of them, but that uh, through this you know, groove in the mind, it may be that it more commonly goes towards one aspect. And so I found this a very helpful teaching in my own experience. When I listened to Sharon give a talk on it, she was emphasizing that of being a deluded type of which she is. And through listening to her talk, it was the recognition that this was the common groove that my mind fell into, tendencies that are common for someone who, ha- who is a deluded type. And you know, one of the things she was saying was that a deluded type will often not trust in their own perception. And this was something I had noticed throughout my whole life. And, you know, it had kind of amazed me how, you know, in one moment I could have great clarity about some perception. You know, say just something like sitting in the library and there's that plant as you walk in the door and it has red flowers. So, you know, maybe I would be saying something to somebody about the plant with the red flowers and they'd say, oh, no, it has blue flowers. And the first thought through my mind would be, oh, I must have made a mistake. You know, and a minute before that, I would have known with great uncertainty that it was red flowers. But, you know, so when I heard her talk about this, it helped me to see it as a habit, a tendency. It helped me to see that it was impersonal in its nature, that it was something that one could look into, one could come to understand with wisdom how this comes to be. And that it didn't mean that I was ultimately stupid, that you know, I didn't need to define myself by this. So I found this uh, way of looking at some of these habits of mind as being very helpful. It also has helped me to hold these habits much more lightly when they do occur, to have a sense of humor with them. You know, in our practice, in our lives, we can get so serious about this all. And... If we don't have a sense of humor, we're just going to get rigid, tight, 
and suffer even more. But to be able to hold these tendencies lightly. And when we begin to pay attention to them, there does come some understanding. And, you know, it isn't that immediately in recognizing them that we, they simply dis- dissolve, disappear, but by really paying attention to what's happening in the experience, we begin to see the causes. We begin to see how, how these mind states get fed. And with that, you know, there just comes a point where we cease to do them because they create more suffering. I just had a, a simple experience today um, of just seeing how, you know, finally one catches on if one pays attention. And I was doing the dishes, and the, the dish rack got pretty full. And the last dish to go on there was a small frying pan. And so I put the frying pan on the top of all of this pile of dishes, and it slid right off. And, you know, I picked it up, and I looked where it was, I was going to place it, and it was the same place it had been. And it really looked, in my mind, like it should hold on there. So I put it there again. It slid off again. I did it one more time. I picked it up. I looked again, and I put it in exactly the same place. And sure enough, it slid off. But the next time I picked it up, Something had been learned. (laughs) And, you know, if we keep paying attention, wisdom dawns. (laughs) So as I speak tonight, as I speak about each of the types, it's really important that we look at this as a way to come to understand the workings of our minds. And we don't use this as ammunition to say that we are a terrible person. That only leads to more suffering. That we don't put ourselves in a box. That will lead to more suffering. It's really to help us to see into the impersonal, insubstantial nature of these habits, of these tendencies, of these states of mind, so that we can have a wise relationship when they arise. You know, we've probably all had moments where some really strong mind state arises. We have a moment where anger just comes forth, and it comes forth in all its intensity. But in that moment, There's a wisdom in the mind that doesn't say, this is who I am, that doesn't say someone else is to blame, that doesn't say, I'm wrong, I'm bad. We just know it as anger. And when we just see it for what it is, when we just see its nature, It doesn't stick. It's simply a part of a changing flow of conditioned experience. So greed, 
I'm sure we all are familiar with what greed feels like. I know in coming to practice, it was, there was amazement in the mind when I could connect with the energy of greed, the force of it. When, you know, just like this, I have to have, I want. And, you know, when we look at greed, it will come up with this, what one could say is the stupidest things. You know, that it, the mind will fix onto anything as to wanting, needing. You know, I've seen total anguish in my heart thinking I needed a new dress. You know, that like that dress was going to bring me happiness. And of course, if one looks, one recognizes that, you know, it's going to be really transitory. You know, that one's real sense of well-being is not going to significantly shift with this new dress. No. And there's so many ways that this wanting comes up. But it's this burning this desire, this craving or lust. You know, and many times there's this selfishness. It's so self-referencing. I want, I need, I have to have without any awareness of the impact of this. You know, we really put ourselves at the center of the universe. And with greed, there's this mistaken notion that some experience, something, somebody will bring us happiness. And so... There's this movement, and it, you know, it can. If we're focused on what we think is going to bring us happiness, there can be a moment of anticipation. There can be a moment where we actually get what we want. And if we can put enough of those moments together, we don't see how tiring it is. We don't see the place of dissatisfaction from which this is arising. But when we pay attention. It's really a different story. It's exhausting. There's no satisfaction. The happiness never lasts. No, it's always momentary. I know recently when I was doing a retreat, I started to notice these moments when I'd get what I wanted. And there would be this rush. And at first I really believed that it was that rush of pleasure, that rush of getting what one needed. And then... When I paid closer attention, I recognized that it was actually the release from the grip of wanting. That that is so tiring. It's so stressful. But we don't know it if we don't look. Patricia spoke last week about how this greed can play out in our practice, where we may be wanting to improve ourselves, wanting to be a better person. Um, We may find that we set up for ourselves some unattainable goal, where we practice wanting certain mind states. And we may have in our practice experience moments of meditative bliss and then we start trying to align our practice to re-get 
this state. And it's fueled by this wanting mind. If we look at greed, how it manifests on a personality level, we'll often find when this tendency is strong that there can be a tendency in life to notice that which is beautiful, that which is pleasant. There may be a tendency to gloss over that which is unpleasant. We might have the perspective of life in life that the cup is always half full. There may be a tendency when some pleasant experience is there to really want to revel in it. I have a friend who says that she's a greed type and we were out walking one day. And, you know, she was walking along and it was this gorgeous day. And you could just feel in her this sense of, I just want to revel in it so it can be even better, you know, just to drink, devour every piece of beauty that was there. And you know that, just feel it when that happens. It's tiring. It's not, it's different than opening to the pleasant. It's really a different felt sense. You know, it's like that leaning in, trying to suck out of experience something, where when we open to a pleasant experience, that's just what it is. It's pleasant. And, you know, it can be touched in many ways but there isn't that extra. It's just what it is. In the Vasudhi Magga, this commentary that speaks about the different personality types says that um, when there's a predominance of greed, one is likely to experience a lot of deceit, fraud, pride, evilness of wishes, greatness of wishes, discontent, foppery, which I had to look up in the dictionary, (laughs) which is the foolish quality or action, a foolish quality or action, and personal vanity. The Vasudhi Magga also um, says that the different personality types can be distinguished by uh, the way one walks, acts, does things, uh, different states of mind that commonly arise in the mind, and they have a description for all the different personality types. I, at one point, made an adaptation of this to describe uh, the different personality types, and I based it on someone whom is arriving at the retreat center for a meditation retreat. Uh, I thought about adapting it to here, but one of the things that's obvious to me is when you go to the retreat center, there seems to be more variables. Here there's not so many different rooms. You know, the rooms are set up the same way. Um, the retreat, retreat center just has more variables. So I, I left it in the setting of the retreat center. And so I'll, this is about the, the one, a person arriving at the retreat center who is of a greedy temperament. On arriving at the meditation center, one of greedy temperament has already called the center to request the room that they perceive is the most favorably placed. That is, is the quietest, has the best light and the best proximity. On arrival at the center, they go straight to the meditation hall to put their cushion down in the most favorable spot. This is soon followed up by registering as quick as possible to get the yogi job of their choice. 
On arrival in their room, they immediately move the furniture to have the most aesthetically pleasing sense. And noticing the room across the hall has a better chair, they quickly swap. In dressing for meditation, the three temperaments are also distinguishable. The greedy type arrives in the hall with the latest stretch fabrics that always leave one looking elegant. They're color-coordinated, and their socks are of no exception. They have the latest in slip-on shoes and a jacket for every occasion. They leave their shoes in the cloakroom in the same spot every day, and it's a spot that allows them quick entry and exit. In walking meditation, the greed type appears to glide across the room, each step carefully placed. In the yogi job of wiping tables, the greed type carefully wipes the table with strokes that are long and smooth, creating a beautiful, even pattern of wetness. In seeing impermanence, the greed type sees it as another opportunity. It might be just better than the last pleasant experience. In discussing types, the greed type thinks they have the most fun and that at times they seem almost prideful of their type or they have a tendency to glorify it. They have been known to refer to themselves as the sensual type. Maybe some of us recognize ourselves. Or know that we have times when our mind is leaning in that direction. But it's not all bad news. Even even though we may have a strong tendency in that way, there is a quality in the mind that is helpful. With the greed type, there is a willingness to open to life to come close to life. And what is happening with this greed is that there's the continually coming close to um, experiences that are really unreliable, that can't bring that which is trustworthy, that can't bring a deep satisfaction. But through that movement in the mind, it can when we start to connect with that, what, that which is reliable, that which is trustworthy, and we're not identifying, we start to find great joy in connecting, connecting with Dhamma, the truth, that there comes a, um, a wish to instead of cherishing objects that are unwholesome, cherishing objects that are of value, have virtue. So greed can be transformed into a quality of faith, trust. And when this happens, we find that rather than clinging to Grasping, generosity becomes predominant. Renunciation, letting go. Because there's great faith, great confidence, great trust. 
when the Buddha was alive, he often gave different practices to people. And it was said to be based upon different tendencies in their minds. With the, a person who had a predominance of greed would often experience states of greed in their mind. He would often get them to reflect on impermanence. To really come to know impermanence. Because then we really see this futility of chasing after desire in these fleeting experiences of life. He also taught people of this temperament to reflect on the 32 parts of the body. No, because the person of the greedy temperament can look at, tend to look at the pleasant, to gloss over, and you know certainly we can look at the body as being something of beauty, but when we look at it on the level of parts of the body, it loses that glamour. It you know becomes something that this really you know not a lot to stay identified with. Know that it isn't so glorious as we make it out to be. If we are a person who has a predominance of greed, through our practice, we really begin to wake up to the pain of attachment, to the pain of desire, to the pain of chasing after pleasant experience. This really calls for a shifting of the attention from the object of desire to the desire itself. Looking when we experience greed. Now this, this is where it can be transformed through understanding, through being close to, understanding the cause of, seeing the nature of. So really looking at greed when it arises in our experience. As we do so, we see it arises and passes, just like everything else. It's born out of conditions. We stop mistaking it to be self. So the next, we we often hear greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, it's hard to say someone is a hatred type. That sounds pretty harsh. But hatred has many different forms. Now, it it can be aversion. And, you know, mostly it's spoken of as being an aversive type, where there's aversion, anger, hostility, dislike, ill will, When there's aversion, we don't like our experience and think our happiness relies on getting rid of it. 
Um, so needing to separate. Um, it's that energy of pulling away from. We find when aversion is present, we resist, we re- avoid, we deny what we do not like. And sometimes with aversion, when it's in the form of anger, there can be a lot of self-righteousness. We really tend to lose perspective when aversion is present. Um, In Buddhist psychology, it's talked about how aversion, anger, hatred is a way of burning that which supports us. So we move into separation, disconnection, And this becomes very painful. Often we'll find, if there's strong aversive tendencies, that one can view other people as the enemy. Sometimes, if the aversion is directed towards ourselves, we view certain aspects that we experience as enemy. And it creates a lot of self-hatred, self-judgment, a lot of blame. We find that we tend to push away feelings such such as sadness, loneliness, fear, and we become very brutal with ourselves. We find that we live in a world of both inner and outer conflict. We'll find that um, it can manifest in two very different ways where there can be a striking out at experience in an attempt to annihilate experience, thinking that we can get rid of something, or it can manifest as a way of pulling back by way of fear and inner recoiling that can have a freezing effect. And so an aversive type person can, you know, it can sometimes be hard to distinguish because, you know, the outward striking person uh, might be more noticeable, but the fear type may not be quite so noticeable. A person who, you know, just has a tendency to pull away when stepping into a new situation, when things are uncertain. But they both are based in aversion. It's said that the aversive type experiences states of anger, enmity, disparaging, can be disparaging, domineering. Uh, They can have a lot of envy and avarice. So this is the aversive type in arriving at the meditation center. The aversive type on arriving at the meditation center looks at the new flooring in the front foyer and finds fault with it. As they proceed to the registration desk, they notice that this room is still its same ugly self with paint chipping and drab flooring. As they register and are assigned a yogi job, they are forthright in in saying why they can't do it. On arrival in their room, they immediately notice the distant sound of a flushing toilet and return to the office to see if a room change is possible. The aversive type arrives in the hall with an outfit that never calls attention or provokes judgment from another, other than that may be slightly tight or evidence of a shirt or blouse that has hurriedly been tucked in. They kick off their shoes in the coat room, pushing the other shoes to the side, irritated that they should be there. The aversive type hastily plows their toes into the ground as they walk across the room. 
with each step having a loud sound as they walk. As they line up in the hall in the dining room for food, the aversive type is the one standing behind the greed type who was first in line. (laughs) And they're standing behind them, drumming their fingers and restlessly shifting from foot to foot. In the yogi job of wiping tables, the aversive type clutches a sponge as they hurriedly wipe across the table with an audible huff, and people automatically move out of their way. In seeing impermanence, the aversive type experiences fear and anxiety and wants to control it. In discussing the types, the aversive type thinks they have it the hardest and even maybe the worst type. And deep down, they feel that they are somehow to blame for this, although their words often reflect that others are to blame. But two, there's good news with this tendency in the mind. That often, with aversion, what's happening is there's just a reactivity to seeing something. And someone who has this tendency can often have a very sharp mind that sees clearly. And they're simply not liking what they see. So as they practice and become less reactive, this anger, aversion, transforms into wisdom. We can often find that the aversive type is not afraid to say things that others, that can be hard truths, that others may find difficult. But when an aversive type can learn to say those things without reactivity, it can often be a gift. The aversive type is often not happy just to stay on the surface. They want to dive deep into the truth of things. And for this reason, uh, there's some speculation that the aversive types actually have the quick path. And one of the reasons being that the suffering of aversion is so readily knowable. With greed, we can be deceived because there is the pleasure, there is the momentary happiness But with the aversion, unless we're caught in, um, there is an element, uh, the Buddha talked about how anger can be murderously sweet. You know, when there's the self-righteousness in there, it's deceptive. But when it's that separation, the recoiling, the striking out, it's painful. And it's really obvious when we pay attention. It's easier to see. So the Buddha, when he saw people who were prone to aversion, might guide them towards practicing loving kindness, which helps break down this barrier of separation, this sense of separation. All of the Brahma Viharas can be very helpful for one of an aversive temperament. 
And it also helps to turn the mind towards seeing goodness. You know, it become, the mind can become really good at finding fault. You know, a versive type often walks into a room and will just see what's out of place, what's wrong. Uh, so there can be a training of the mind to also see what's good, what's beneficial, what's wholesome. If we are an aversive type, we will find that we wake up to this pain of separation, this continually pulling away from our experience. Our practice will confront that habit of simply moving into separation as a basis for finding control and security. And instead, we'll look deeper into this aversion and really come to know it and how it is unsubstantial, how it is impermanent, how it is simply born out of these habits, conditioned experience, and that we don't need to identify with it as belonging to us. And then there's delusion seems to be the one I'm most intimate with. (laughs) Uh, So delusion, where there's confusion, bewilderment, sometimes dullness. We don't quite know what's going on, don't understand things, which brings about wrong view. Um, It's a mental blindness, an unknowing. And, you know, delusion is really what conceals the real nature of things. And delusion is common to all of these three poisons, they're all based in delusion, not seeing clearly. But the, um, in the Vasudhimaga, it talks about the, this, the deluded type where there's an experience of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> there's an experience of sheer delusion they call sheer delusion. And, you know, I recognize this through, you know, you're not so pulled toward the pleasant. That's not what's pulling you. And there's not the pushing away of the unpleasant. But there is just a not knowing. Now, sometimes a a deluded type will be somebody who appears to be equanimous. And yet their equanimity is not real equanimity because it's coming through a disconnection, not seeing clearly. But there's not a lot of reactivity in that. But there's also confusion, a bewilderment. We can often find this um, tendency manifested, you know, through a sense of being spaced out a lot in life. You know, I recognize this, you know, if I'm just sitting, not connecting, check out, space out. Um, Not a lot of awareness of what the mind is doing. With this, there can be a tendency to not be so attached to preferences. And one can see the good and bad 
in anything and therefore has trouble making a decision often falls into a state of doubt. It's something one of a deluded temperament becomes very familiar with, this state of doubt. You know, and you, know, you often find yourself in the fork on a path and you just don't know which way to go. Um, can find that in life um, shopping centers or you know, uh, a way to be tortured because there's just so much opportunity, so many possibilities around you. Um, and you, know, you just you look at things. I get lost. You know, I, I, if I don't stay on track, if I don't stay focused, that there's just a, you know, you're walking through, looking at this, looking at that. I drive my husband nuts when we go into a shopping uh, center. I have found that it makes for cheap, cheap shopping trips because I can never figure out what to buy, <laughs> what's of value. <laughs> uh. So we find as a result of there being this perplexity or bewilderment, confusion in the mind, that there is a tendency that when one comes across something that appears to be of value, to want to cling to it, to want to hang on to it, because this seems of value. And it's like not having to look at everything fresh and new to figure out what's of value. So um, we want something that brings a sense of certainty. And we start to trust in that rather than trusting in our own understanding. And this creates a sense of dis-ease. And there comes with it worry, fretting, an energy of agitation. And it can, you know, often the deluded type will experience a lot of restlessness where the mind has a tendency to flutter like a leaf. Um, And life can seem like a very random unfolding. It's said that one of deluded temperament often experiences states of stiff stiffness, torpor, agitation, worry, uncertainty, and holding on tenaciously with refusal to relinquish. As we wake up to delusion, we begin to encounter the pain of it rather than that equanimity of disconnection. And I've certainly experienced that in my own life of just seeing, you know, driving down a road, a road I've been down so many times before, but because I've not paid so much attention to the detail, I don't know if I'm on the right road. And, you know, I, you know it just becomes painful at a certain point. Um, you know, one time I was on Maui and I was teaching and I had a break and I was going to go for a swim and it was about an hour's drive to the ocean. It was a very hot day. I was driving in a car that had no air conditioning. I was given a map as to how to get there. And, you know, that in itself for a deluded type is really a challenge <laughs> um, to figure out how to get somewhere. And so, you know, it took me a while, but eventually I made it. I got to the beach. I took my bag. I went into the shelter to change. I put my hand in the bag, and I discovered that I forgot my bathing suit. And in that moment, my heart sank, and the thought came, 
sometimes it's so hard to be me. You know, it wasn't the first time I'd done something like this. <laughs> and so you're just, just waking up to the cost of not paying attention. So here's a description of the deluded type arriving at the meditation center. So they arrive and they promptly park in the staff parking lot, not noticing the sign for retreat parking. And as they venture into the building, they have a slight smile on their face, but the look in their eyes is that of one who is lost. They are easy to please with their yogi job and are likely to end up with a yogi job that is not suitable for their physical limitations that they have, but they, it, it just didn't seem like it mattered. It takes them time to find their room as they study the map that makes no sense at all. And finally, someone notices the confusion and takes them to their room. And actually, a lot of this is based on personal experience. (laughs) When they discover they have a roommate, they are ready to let the other one have their choice of which bed to take, unless, of course, it's another deluded type, and then they may spend hours trying to decide who should get what bed. In dressing for meditation, the deluded type arrives in the hall with an unmatching sweatsuit, hair all awry. Their clothes are layered in a way that makes them look like a patchwork quilt. In leaving the hall, they hover in the coat room, looking for where they might have placed their shoes. In walking meditation, the deluded type almost trips with each step and looks unsure as to where to place their next step. The deluded type follows along in the food line behind, watching everyone else, watching to see what other utensils people take so that they will know what to do. In the yogi job of wiping tables, the deluded type sees one dirty spot and then another and therefore wipes in an erratic manner, leaving pools of water behind. In seeing impermanence, the deluded type knows something happened but they're not quite sure what. In discussing the types, the deluded type is the person sitting here that really doesn't know which one they are until someone else points it out to them, and then they still remain for a long time unsure. But there is something, again, in this quality that can be helpful, that can transmute it. Um, this, this spaciousness that is disconnected can, with wisdom, become connected. And then there becomes equanimity, real equanimity, equanimity based on connection. And there's the spaciousness of mind that is non-reactive, but through wisdom, not through the bliss of ignorance. So, whichever type we may incline towards, and, you know, I think that in different times at life there may be different tendencies that we're really becoming familiar with. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not better to be one type than another. This is just the habits of mind that we can look into, inquire into. 
This is where understanding can come. None of the types are flattering. So not to worry whether it may seem like there's strong greed tendencies, strong aversive tendencies, strong deluded tendencies. But to just work with what's there, what's ever there. You know, many times we'll find there's one strong, and then there might be another, another one that we work with more frequently. You know, I sometimes call that the rising sign. You know, it's, a, it's just there to be worked with. But in hearing this, I also want to say that in our experience, we can also be looking to the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Because these appear in our experience. Many times we don't even notice. But if we pay attention, we will also start to see this. In the moment of non-greed, when there's not this grasping, not this wanting, where there's a capacity of heart to be generous, to let go, it manifests as detachment. when there's non-hatred, where there's no ill will, aversion, we're not living in opposition. And so instead, there's an agreeableness. It gives way to a deep respect and caring. It manifests as loving kindness, compassion, gentleness, friendliness. It's where we come out of a self-absorbed isolation and live in connection again. We live in a vast web of interconnectedness. And we recognize that. And we live intimately with that. And we live with care and respect. We're able to be with that which is displeasing without moving into aversion. And then there's non-delusion, where ignorance is dispelled, wisdom is present, knowledge. The veil of ignorance has been removed. We can see things just as they are. There's no more confusion, no more bewilderment. I'd like to share a teaching from Sayada Utejaniya. To know reality, you have to be courageous. If you wish to arrive at the truth, you have to start meditating, to be aware of yourself. The first thing you need to acknowledge is that there are defilements in your mind. This is basic. We all want to be good, and we we therefore tend to see and show only our positive sides. If we do not face the defilements, we end up lying to ourselves and others. If you want to change for the better, you must know your negative sides. When you start seeing yourself in a realistic way and acknowledging both your good and bad qualities, you are doing well. In our experience, to notice when greed is there and when non-greed is there, when aversion is there and when non-aversion is there, and when delusion is there, a non-delusion is present. Paying attention 
looking closely, doing so in the most kind and caring way that we can. So we can come to a place of understanding, a wise relationship with life. so that we can be of service in this life and in death. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.